You're listening to The Outspoken Bible, a podcast from Scottish Bible Society with Fiona Stewart, Neil Glover and Jen Robertson. Well, welcome to Season 2, Episode 12 of The Outspoken Bible. This is the final episode in this series and it's the last on our story of Joseph. I'm Fiona Stewart and as usual, I'm of course joined by Jen Robertson and Neil Glover. Hello to you both. Hello, Hi, Fiona. Fiona. Hi, Jen. I have a quick question to kick us off with. What do you most appreciate about your family? It's a difficult question to answer, isn't it? Because families are quite complex and families are, there's different parts to my family. The family I live with now, my children and my husband, well, one child at the moment, um, I think their directness, probably, they are the people who really tell me how it is and tell me when I'm being ridiculous while loving me. So that, off the top of my head, that, that's probably a really crucial thing for the most intimate family that I know, because obviously family's bigger than that. Brilliant. Thank you. Neil? I did spring this on you both, by the way. Sorry about that. We were thinking about this last night. I think it's the life and the adventure and the... It sounds such a cliche, but it's true in the craziness. You know, the, there are sometimes we think we're just hanging on and no more. Mm-hmm. And um, and yet that that's the life... That, that we have and that's full also of many moments of grace. Very good. So I'm intrigued there. What do you most appreciate about family? Uh, I haven't actually thought about an answer to this. Uh, I, mm, so I suppose with my immediate family, which is my, my parents and my brother, we, we are still, I think, surprisingly close uh-huh. for somebody of, of the age, well, somebody the age I am. I'm, quite, I'm pretty close to my parents, really. And uh, we actually enjoy spending time together, which is maybe quite unusual. Yeah, I saw something on Facebook with you doing something with your brother last week. I was at a film premiere. Was that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm in a film. I took my brother as my plus one to the premiere. It's great. You, are you in the film? Story. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Uh, Jesse and the Elf Boy. So it sounds quite similar to Joseph and the Triumph of Grace, doesn't it? Jesse and the Elf Boy is the name of the film. So it comes out. I'm not. I'm not actually sure exactly when it's going to come out, but this was a cast and crew screening because um, the the final cut has been done. I like to see what you thought of the film. I really enjoyed it, actually, and I'm not. I'm not just saying that because you know to promote it. I genuinely really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the script though when I got the script through. I, I, my part's very small, um, uh-huh. so it's just a day's filming on it. But um, it's a good story, just kind of family friendly, bit of mystery, a little bit of uh, kind of supernatural about it. It's about a, an elf basically who makes friends with, or a gilly do, who makes friends with a girl, and then um, well, I'll not say anymore. Will, will we be able to see it? Well, hopefully, that was one of the things they were talking about that evening, is just about how they want to distribute it. Because, yeah, I think they're, I think they're still in talks about how to do the distribution. Jen, how do you feel about the fact we're sharing a podcast with a film star this morning? <laughs> are we, are we not star. used to that? We're all, we're all, we always share a podcast with a, a star. That's true. A sound and scream. You're both so kind. You're so kind. <laughs> so yes, my brother and I went to a film premiere together in answer to that original question. So today, the, the reason for asking that question was that we are talking about Pharaoh. We're going Pharaoh to family. So Genesis 46 through to 50. So really, there's a lot in what we're going to talk about today, I think, about family relationships and uh, family blessings and continuation of the family of Israel. Um so if you're reading along with us, there there is still time to get hold of a, a copy of Joseph and the Triumph of Grace. And again, you know, we're quite recommending that people buy group copies of that and maybe think about using that in the autumn um, with uh, home groups and Bible studies and so on. Uh, really good stuff. So before we jump into that discussion, I think it's time for Glover's Off. Glover's Off this week is about the modern pentathlon, which is just the most bonkers events in, in the Olympics. Uh, so it's a uh, swimming, um, what is it? It's horse riding, fencing, shooting, and running. And the, sh- the running and the shooting go together. The way it works is the first three events give you a kind of time handicap, and then all the runners uh, run off at different times. So that come the end of it, un- unlike the decathlon or the heptathlon, the first person over the line is the actual winner. So it's a cumulative competition, because I, I wasn't actually clear on that. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is your scores in the swimming, the the fencing and the horse riding get turned into a, a time advantage. So say I've got a one minute advantage because I've done really well in those events. And what happens is in the run, I'll run a minute earlier than any other competitor. And then what I do on the on the shooting 
think it's 3.2k at the end but i think there's either three or four shooting bits it's called the laser run and you you've got to you stop at a shooting station and you i think you've got to hit four targets before you're allowed to keep running is how it works well i'm slightly angry at it because i used to think this is just militarism this is clearly some kind of soldiers elitist game and when i went to broughton high school in edinburgh we didn't do fencing so there, there's something going on and we had no access to horse riding um having said that there's a very egalitarian horse riding scene around me at the moment but what it turns out it's about and and i so i guess it was something military it's very incoherent there's a it was brought into the olympics in 1912 and there have been frequent attempts to remove it so there's obviously people going this is bonkers uh, but it, people have failed the olympics have always said it's a core part of the olympics it's been there since 1912 and i used to think it's obviously got something to do with the military but it turns out it's meant to simulate a soldier escaping from the behind enemy lines during a time of war so they've got to swim and they've got to fence and and shoot and so on and what i hadn't understood there's this bit where you do the horse riding you're given a random horse they draw lots and uh, people might have seen last week there was a, a german uh, competitor who was ahead and suddenly her horse uh, started playing up and people were saying this because she didn't know the horse i think the coach punched the horse which yeah. um pretty pretty unpleasant it reminded me of a there's a scene where that happens in the film blazing saddles so i couldn't get that out of my head yeah, and I used to think the random allocation of horses was some kind of fairness mechanism or something. But it turns out it's it's not it's nothing to do with that. It's it's to meant to stimulate the fact that the horse you ride behind enemy lines is a horse that you've stolen from some random stable that you've come across and therefore you're riding an unknown horse. So it's to add to the the sense of authenticity. So I just think of the more the modern pentathlon bonkers 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 but actually it's a story about escape it's a story mm. about resourcefulness it's a story about trying to use everything that you've got and you're not really allowed to have some kind of coherent pattern it's utterly random stuff that's thrown at you and i was trying to you know do the what's the biblical connection who are the biblical people that had to escape and there are a few there's david running from saul there's um hagar running from abraham and sarah but of course what better illustration for this week than than joseph having to escape uh and having to use all his resourcefulness and everything about him not only for him to escape but as we're discovering in the story the individual modern pentathlon becomes a team event and it's about everybody escaping to Egypt. So that's Glover's off for this week. Very nice. Very nice. I was thinking about Paul in the basket. You could oh, be yes. incorporate that. It could be yeah, yeah. yeah. A sixth a sixth sport. <laughs> could you He's thrown over a wall in a basket. Send your letter to the IOC <laughs> saying I believe that there should be another event added to the modern pentathlon. Basket dropping. I'll get onto that just as soon as we finish recording. <laughs> Recording this and recording Job and all the other projects and starring in films. <laughs> Thank you very much, Neil. That is great. Fantastic. So we are moving on to the end of the story. So 46 through to 50. And we left it. The brothers had, had reconciled with Joseph and we left the story with Jacob still back in Israel. And uh, we pick it up uh, with that phrase, don't we, that Israel started. So Israel started out with everything that belonged to him. How did we get on with this section? What were what were our general thoughts before we, we plunge into some more detail? Jen, how did you go? On? Oh, there's so there's so much in this last bit. And so many beautiful wee moments that maybe I'll come to them later, but it's just lots of wee phrases that jumped out at me. And I think I've I've enjoyed reading the but this bit of the of the Genesis story alongside the cartoon. And I would just really encourage you to do that if you've got a book, because I mean we are all we're all different in how we understand and how we take in information and how we enjoy hearing stories but for me I've enjoyed reading the, the the words and then flipping back and looking at how Jason has interpreted that so just one really example we start off in chapter 46 with this the list of all the people who travel uh, with Jacob to Egypt and if and if you look at page um, 41 I think it is um, you get that illustrated in there's just all these wee people and there's there's babies in baskets and there's toddlers putting their hands up and there's older people um, and there's lots more in that, that picture I could talk about. But I think for me, that, that's what I've enjoyed about this whole story is that catching the moments, and there's many of them, but then seeing them how someone has illustrated them, that was really good. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good. 
I was thinking about that actually, because we we have our first in person missional community gathering tonight, and I mean it's it's interesting hosting people in your house, a, a group of people in your house mm. again. I'm quite wary of it. I'm feeling quite uh, nervous. I think about about all these people coming in and how everybody's going to be, and some people will want to hug and some people will really not. And you know, just managing all of that is going to be quite interesting. Uh, but it, it was it was interesting because it gave me pause to think about people's life stages changing. You know, so it's a long time since since people have seen each other and and things will have gone on, and it would be the same for for the people traveling, isn't it? Everybody's yeah. real life is going on as this story is unfolding. It's we don't they don't sort of sit in isolation and it wouldn't all be way hey we're going back to see joseph probably certainly not <laughs> where are we going yeah no exactly i liked also jen before we before we started you were talking about the the shards the black yes. shards that sit on the characters do you, do yeah, you want to tell us yeah about we that? have and we haven't talked about the shards i don't mm-hmm. think previously in our conversations about this joseph and the triumph of grace but they appear all through the story but in that particular image um, you see the black shards and the shards, I mean, they represent, I suppose they represent sin, they represent things that break us, things that hurt us, losses in our lives, lives damage in our lives. But in that, it's just what we've been talking about, Fiona, that, that, that picture of them all travelling down to Egypt, there's some people with big shards on their back mm-hmm. and going to a new place or changing the direction of our lives um, doesn't, ta- doesn't take away our, our baggage, I suppose we could call it, or our losses or the things we've suffered. We, we take them with us into new situations and there they are still there as they travel to see joseph so it's interesting to look out for them another thing to look out for in the in the book years ago i went to india i spent a year in india uh in kerala in the south of india anyway before we went i remember the guy who was sending us a guy called bobby anderson he was a slightly irreverent guy he was a minister uh, and he said, I've got one, I've got one thing I need to tell you before you all go. If this is the one thing that you're ever going to uh, hear. And it's a quotation. And you're thinking, well, probably, Bobby, it probably won't be the Bible. And sure enough, it wasn't. And I think it was either Plato or Aristotle who said, they change their sky, they change their skies, not their souls, those who travel across the seas. They change their skies not their souls, those who travel across the seas. And he said, all the stuff that you have and all your issues in life, they're going to go into your suitcase with you and your rucksack. And when you get out and unpack, they're going to come back out again with you. And it's exactly what you're saying, Jen. The shards go down to Egypt, although as we're probably going to allude to at the end, that something's going to happen to those shards. Uh, But but they they take down all the pain. The other thing I I wanted to just comment on in that first chapter that we're looking at today 46 is the lists and uh, we were talking about this before I, I remember i remember ages ago reading a quote where somebody said there are two kinds of people in literature two people two kinds of readers those who like lists and those who hate them and i just thought who likes lists the also not, not a great, great quote, quote. <laughs> not the most inspirational quote <laughs> looking for lists. i was thinking about it um, <laughs> It's like uh, Lord of the Rings are like that. It's full of lists, you know, Schmorg, son of Borg, son of Burg, son of Schmorg. But what's lists transformed for me? I remember once in our local school, it was Holocaust Memorial Day. And and, uh, schools do this thing. I don't know if either of you have come across this, where, where people like leave scotland like three o'clock in the morning fly to poland go to auschwitz get back in the plane mm. and come back pretty much the same day it's, it, i mean it, it, this sounds facile but it's a day trip to auschwitz and some of the the kids in our in our some of the young people in our school had done that but what was really profound was that one of the girls who who went her family had originally been polish there's lots of people from Eastern Europe that, that are now living in Aberfeldy. And she had found the names of, I think it was our great-grandparents, in the list of the of the, the book of people who, who had lost their lives in Auschwitz. Gosh. And suddenly, mm-hmm. the, I just remember the poignancy of that moment. You know, that was a list, but there was something awesome about... Yeah, it was awesome in the literal sense, a cause of awe, of awe. In, in this girl who was standing in front of us finding people who were related to her in the list. So I, th- I think there's something about lists when you find yourself in them or you know the story that suddenly they you become incredibly glad of them. And just and also that 
lists are lists there are lists of names if you, as you've said Neil so that each name matters and that's how I now approach lists in the Bible because I think each name matters and the Bible is detailed and and the writers cared enough to name those people and to us it's just names but they're all individuals to God mm-hmm. and known by God and well I, I want to follow that kind of God and this is often the case that the list has a, a coherence to it um, famously, the most probably famous list in the New Testament, the New Testament begins with a list of Matthew's uh, list of names. And it um, it's the fact that Matthew traces three sets of 14 generations um, to lead up to the story of Jesus from Abraham to, to Jesus. And you see, so in amongst all the apparent randomness, there's a pattern being woven. And we find the exactly same here. And once again, it's numbers a number of which allows you to see the names and it's where uh, we discover that the number of people going down with Jacob into Egypt is 66 so that's two sixes so that's a very interesting number that points to creation that takes us right back to the start of of Genesis so there's a work of creation going on here 66 and then we discover that once they're there if you include Joseph's relatives it's 70 and seven is the absolute number that holds genesis chapter one together and seven is the number which completes so what has happened here is an is an act of profound completion by this family going down to egypt and also the women are in the list and i get i it does annoy me because they're kind of side issues to the list (laughs) you know here's the sons oh yeah and and there was this um there was this other son by a woman from from Canaan. It says, you know, like this woman doesn't even get her name, and then the daughters Dinah, Dinah's mentioned, and and other women. But at least they're there, you know. The, so my negative is, oh, they're kind of a side issue. But then I'm, I, I I try and balance that by saying, well, they are there. They could just have been missed out, which probably would have been the normal way of listing the family. So at least they're there, even if it's a kind of by the way. So there's a kind of embryonic, kind of move towards full inclusion but it's not there yet yes <laughs> the bible is what it is yeah <laughs> and just just on what we're on genealogies and 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 family relationships so can i ask a really naive question maybe which has always bothered me which is why why is it when you talk about the 12 tribes of israel why is joseph not given his tribe why why is it passed on to ephraim and manasseh i've always guessed that i mean it's it's a bit like the disciples sometimes the names don't always you normally end up with 12 but the way that you get there is varies i think it's a sign of of double blessing that somehow uh joseph becomes two tribes uh and but later on uh, to get of course that then bumps the number of tribes up to 13 if you if you do that Uh so one way of getting around that you you can either is you sometimes miss out levi uh, because he he doesn't get a land allocation or um in or what you do is you compress them back into be the 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 full tribe of joseph again or in the book of revelation for reasons i've never fully understood you miss out dan uh so but yeah it's it's different at different places I'm not sure if that's really answered my question, but the double blessing thing makes sense. <laughs> that so was that, the answer. That, you just yeah, got a bunch of random other facts. facts. <laughs> no, interesting facts, though. Nonetheless, interesting. Because it made me spin off onto thinking about Levi, actually, because we've not talked about Levi really at all in these past few weeks, have we? But but he is, yeah, the, the kind of um, ironic line, isn't he? Yeah. The, the line of priests and the Levites is, is really significant in the, in the story of Scripture after this. Yes, because um, Moses will come from the tribe of Levi. And what's interesting, we'll come to this later on, but the chapter 49 where uh, Jacob says let's um let's tell you everything that's going to happen I, I used to think this was a blessing I don't think it is you know can you imagine like in the school assembly um the 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 head teacher gets up at the end of sixth year oh we're so proud of you all you're all going out to the big bad world this group of here you're going to go to prison this group of here you're going to go <laughs> merciless entrepreneurs and you're going to exploit people can you imagine what that would be like but it's interesting, Simeon and Levi, uh, we're told their swords have killed a lot of people. They're going to um, cut off the legs of oxen. May the Lord put a curse on them because of their terrible anger. I'm going to scatter them in Jacob's land. I will spread them around Israel. And that's mm-hmm. that's turned into an, an utter curse in that story. It sounds bleak, but what it will actually become in the, the story of the promised land is certainly in Levi's case, the spreading around the land of Israel is to allow them to be priests for the whole people. Yeah. Our, 
can correct me here, but are Simeon and Levi, are they the two brothers that are implicated in the Dinah story? Yeah. And and the rape of Dinah and the murder of all the people? Yeah. And, and that's why their punishment is so harsh. And then I ha- when I thought about that, Fiona, I hadn't thought about Levi then being the priestly line, which is fascinating. So from that place of so much sin and mm. destruction comes... Well, a, a holy order, if you like, a, being separated, a, set apart for God. That's hope, isn't it? Um, for when we get it wrong. One of the things that we're going to talk about as we go on is, is this idea of transformation of what initially appears to be quite a destructive image into something much more gracious or, or points towards grace. And when Levi's told that you will cut oxen, the legs of oxen for fun, um, that then in the story of Levi becomes the fact that Levi's sons, it is sons, uh, are those who slaughter the bulls, which are part of the sacrifices of, of Israel, and the blood is understood that comes from them as part of the, of the healing of Israel. Uh, so th- there's a very interesting transformation uh, of that of that image that happens there. Um, and I can just slightly jump on in a similar vein, where we're told that Zebulun uh, is by the sea in uh, that, that set of predictions, which seems a fairly innocent thing of course the sea in the gospels then becomes the sea of galilee and it's the place where jesus is and it's a uh, naphtali and zebulun uh, out of you the 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 story of the messiah comes so all these seemingly either innocent or in the case of cutting the legs of oxen predictions actually become something often very life-giving in the story that's about to come that's it's so interesting isn't it yeah so interesting. Can we jump into chapter 47? And can we talk a little bit about that? So chapter 47 is uh, Joseph's kind of continued management of the famine situation in Egypt and his treatment of the people of Israel compared to the people of Egypt. How does that sit with us? I have, until we started to produce this book, I had never thought about the injustice that Joseph shows to the Egyptian people. So he gives his family free food out of the stores that he's built and filled uh, with grain. And then the Egyptians need food and he, you need to give, give me your livestock, you need to give me your land, you need to give me your money. And he enslaves them, just as he has he was once enslaved. Um, a phrase we use often, though, the, the bullied becomes the bully. And, and it's, it's just a, a deeply troubling moment which I, and I'm shocked that all the years I've spent reading the Bible that I've never noticed that and again it's back to we talked about the last podcast this mm-hmm. I think I think we set up biblical characters sometimes I think it might be in a Jen's gem we set them up as the heroes but they're not the heroes they're just people like us who get things wrong and this he's get it he gets it wrong big time here and again in the cartoon I, I, as I said I'm enjoying flipping back and looking at the illustrations but you'll see the Egyptians physically rolling up their land you know it's a really beautiful pic not well a beautiful picture of something really terrible that they're having to give it all away it's not theirs anymore yeah i think it's really interesting the way that the end of chapter 46 and this plays into 47 and what you're saying is that that joseph has become the arch politician who plays the system so he says mm-hmm. they the Egyptians, they hate shepherds. Mm-hmm. Let's just play on that. Let's go along with that. And we're going to live in Goshen. Later on, they live in Ramesses. So I'm trying to, I, try, I was trying to hold that together. And they actually have the best of the land, which is a bit also troubling, as you've pointed out. But it seems to me that rather than challenge mm-hmm. prejudice, what Joseph says is, we'll just work within this and we'll make the best of the situation. But of course, this thing creates the the seeds of the, the later domination. So it seems good. We'll just be separate, but equal. And anybody who's South African, when they hear that phrase, will will know that terrible history of that phrase in apartheid, separate but equal, because separate but equal never becomes separate mm. but equal. It becomes separate and also one above the other. And that, will, that sows the seeds of that. In contrast to that is Jacob, who... Him and Pharaoh, in the brief time that they see each other, seem to have this quite a quite warm relationship. It's almost as if Jacob spots within Pharaoh a sense of justice, a sense of warmth, a sense of generosity, possibly because he, he quite likes Joseph. And therefore, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. That's really important. Uh, I wonder what, what that's like 
as you read it in the light of the Exodus story, where Pharaoh becomes a, almost a demonic figure. Um, but but for Jacob, this is someone of potential. Mm-hmm. This is someone whose whose God will will bless and and also an acknowledgement there that Pharaoh might have the military power, but somehow Jacob is 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 the one through whom the power of God, who is even above the military, goes. So I think there's something more generous and hopeful about Jacob's posture than there is about Joseph's. Yes, and it's in that same chapter you get the lovely wee phrase at the end of uh, Israel. Jacob le- worshiping God as he leans on his walking stick, and that, mm. that and and the whole chapter when it's talk when it's Jacob's conversation with Pharaoh, and he talks about the years of his life and how they've been full of trouble. But there's that sense at the end of his life, and his his life is full of years. There he is worshiping God, and we we don't get that kind of comment about Joseph. Now I can't assume that that means he didn't worship, but just as you said, Neil, that, that there seems to be a a connection with God. A, a worshiping of God. It doesn't mean he gets Jacob gets it all right. We know that isn't the case, but he he's worshiping God, and in the midst of trouble, he keeps that connection with God. and And it did remind my my dad died a few years ago now, and um, I was with him a lot in these last few years of life as he struggled, and he was using a Zimmer and many hospital visits and very slow pace walking, and everything in life became very very difficult, as as we know when we're ill and older, that is the case. But in my dad, although he was full of fear and full of pain and full of troubles, he still worshipped God. And I want, you know, I want that for myself. I want to know that whatever happens, I'll know God is still there, which is not easy. Easy to say, not easy to do. I, I had a nice moment in the the car the other day. I was talking with one of our children. Um, this is quite a painful conversation. Our the the particular child I was talking to was complaining that as parents, we hadn't been Christian enough. And they had had encounters of other families where a daily devotions, a Bible readings together, explicit Christian fellowship around the, the, the dinner table was, was an ordinary part of family life. And basically, why don't you do that? And I was like, oh my goodness, yeah, why don't we do that? We've, we've failed. Um, and it was just... I was also talking for some reason we'd also been talking about Jacob and I was saying that that I I love I love Jacob and I I really do love Jacob and later on that converse, conversation I was feeling quite inadequate that we'd slightly failed as parents but I got into the fact just talking about God and I just said sort of as an aside to myself I'm not I'm, I realize this sounds a bit pious but this is the truth I just said I love God and I realized, you know, just when you were talking about Jacob with a walking stick there and talking about loving God, I, I'm not claiming I don't love God perfectly. I, there are lots of mistakes and, and flaws in my life. Um, I can identify a lot with Jacob. I do love God. And, and you know, Jacob there as well, we talked about how he's such a shifty character, he, he, but he loves God. Yeah. And, and ultimately, that's the thing. That's the the truth mm-hmm. about Jacob that's going to be truer than all the other truths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, and I wonder if that I, I was also thinking that when you were you were speaking when Jem was speaking, um, I suppose you know it's a good ending, isn't it, for Joseph yeah. for Jacob? It's a good ending for for the man who has been the deceiver and the the, the twister. That actually, in the end, he yeah. he clings onto that, and maybe that's what Pharaoh recognizes in him. So maybe that's why he carries this authority. Um, yeah, very interesting. Uh, we see a bit more emotion from Joseph in in these closing uh, chapters. So, at the beginning of chapter fifty, it talks about him uh, weeping over his father's body. Um, do you think Joseph is is changing? I mean, I, I appreciate what we just said about the exploitation a couple of chapters back, but do you think do you think there's a change in Joseph as he reaches the end of his life? Yeah, I think that the moment we are. Um... You can get me the page, the chapter number for you. But the moment when Joseph says to his brothers after Jacob has died, because they're so worried, they're so worried that their father's gone and that's all going to fall apart and Joseph isn't going to care any, he's not going to look after them anymore. He's just going to be like, well, that's Jacob going, so everything changes and you're you're in big trouble, the big trouble you deserve. And there's this this moment and it's, again, it's illustrated incredibly powerfully and takes a lot of Jason has taken a lot of pages up in these illustrations but to me it was if the first moment we we see God's character in Joseph and so he's kind and there's grace and there's um 
goodness and he's offering peace to his brothers and there's this transformed relationship as he says um you know it was god 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 was doing this and you you were doing that and i was doing this but it was god which takes me back to what i just said that we do hear of joseph talking about god's action in his life so yeah i i think that is the the moment for me and again as as much as i said i noticed joseph's joseph's injustice and his cruelty i've i also noticed this more starkly for the first time although it's probably been more pointed out to me over the years of this this goodness in joseph not the not the evil that was also present yeah so and and again looking using the, the illustrations and the text you see this the significance of this moment in the story of joseph it, i think it's it's fascinating because the the story of joseph in genesis 37 way back was the story of two dreams and if you remember the first dream it was it was only the brothers i think who bowed down to Joseph and it was only in the second dream that I think his father also bowed down as well and we think that the fulfillment of that dream happens at the moment where Joseph's brothers come and bow down before him at the grain stores of, of Egypt desperate for food and we're even told at that point in the story and Joseph remembered the dream so at that point that that that's that fulfillment of the dream it has a kind of triumphant sense to it it's 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 at last joseph's been vindicated the dream's happening and these people are going to be going to get food but there's as jen as you pointed out there's also a troubling dimension to it it's an image of hierarchy it's an image of of domination it's it there's an unsettling nature to it and what happens at the end of the book is that the dream gets fulfilled a second time but this time, it's the confession of the brothers, are you going to exploit us? So they're worried that, that version one of the fulfillment, the hierarchies, the domination are still going to be there. And what we discover is that Joseph weeps. And this feels to me like a moment at which the dam bursts. And then they all weep together. And, and the bowing now becomes something mutual. It becomes something about a, a shared embrace of these brothers. And I... I I love what what Jason has done in these illustrations in the book for anybody that's reading the book is suddenly I think we counted it was 12 pages are suddenly spent on those six verses so for him this is the this is the moment and um, even at one point it, it's so dark that the line disappears for and for folks reading the the book the line of grace which goes through the whole of the book suddenly on page 56 becomes this river becomes this deluge becomes grace is no longer a dotted line it's a river almost i think a revelation for the healing of the nations and that's what we see with this this river of tears that happens at the end of of genesis 50 that grace hasn't just just triumphed here grace becomes the whole story to the extent that on the page 59 of the book it is nothing but a yellow line um, holding people and then it and then it ends the line does come to an end with the shards all cast down so this this moment in chapter 50 seems to be suddenly the, the a dream which was an image of domination is an image that's full of embrace and of of shared belonging and of grace there's something interesting about the payoff of that as well. I, I was thinking as you were speaking, Neil, about you know that those verses in chapter 50, they're very familiar, aren't they? About um, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. And sometimes I think when you lift that verse out and we use it, rightly or wrongly, to talk about our own situation, yeah. you've almost not got the payoff of the build-up, have you? That verse, that, that thing that he says comes on the back of the, the previous well, right from chapter 37, actually. And and there is something about reading the whole sweep that I have found helpful that, yeah, I want him to say this, yeah. that God meant it for good, but it takes him until that point to be to say it because it needs the working out of everything. And and then I think the, um, you know, that image of floodgates, I think is really, really a profound one in, in that. Yeah, it, it would risk being be glib platitude yeah. if it wasn't said that way. Uh-huh. Yes, and and that's often. I mean, hmm, I wonder if I'm. I wonder if I believe what I'm about to say, but I sometimes think that verse is is. I'm not. I want to use the phrase "trumped out." It's brought out to say, well, you know, God works in all things. God works for the good of those mm. who love Him. You know, it's, it's put alongside the verse in Romans, isn't it? That God works for the good, and that's true. I'm not saying it's not true, but I think 
it it can dismiss the real pain of of what's going on for people sometimes if we if we just trump out the verse without giving the full context i suppose i don't know if that makes sense what i've just said yeah i mean yeah no i was totally what was in my head and from a very personal context not particularly those words but that kind of attitude being passed on to me so when i, I remember how when i had my miscarriage which was my first pregnancy there was enough people wrote lovely cards to me but sometimes people did put in their cards things like you know god means this for good and it'll all work out now at the time in the middle of that loss and pain I was just so angry I was angry at the person that wrote it and I was angry that was that what God was like because I was I I could not accept that that's not it just was wrong but then as the year as the years have gone on I am now able to look back and say you know I am who I, I I've become who I am because of that situation yeah. And things is so I have I have so much more empathy and compassion for people in similar situations and yeah there's a there's a whole lot of stuff that I can now look back and see but you, I couldn't have seen it and you can't see it in in the midst of the sharpness of the pain the pain doesn't go away mm, so mm-hmm. using these words and and as not as a platitude but at the right time are just and in the right way are so is so important. There is a book called everything happens for a reason and other lies i've loved and uh, i i remember somebody i think it was diana butler bass uh, recently heard talking about this saying that this this glib truth everything happens for a reason um is exactly that it's, it when it's packaged in that way that it was sent or packaged in the glib way that that you were talking about um well both jane and fiona that it becomes a kind of it becomes something slightly oppressive. It becomes a it hurts more than it helps. But um, Diana Butler Bass was saying that she she doesn't believe everything happens for a reason, but she has come to believe that everything matters. Oh, that's good. That's a that's a better way to say and it. There, there is a sense that that in the Genesis mm-hmm. story, mm-hmm. something everything matters. Everything is is drawn in, in into this place of story. Yeah, I think in some ways that's a fairer way to talk about God, isn't it? Because yeah. the problem with everything happens for a reason is it actually it puts a particular spin on God's character, I think, um, which we've talked about previously in, in this story, haven't we? But it also, for me, resonates with you know, the psalm where it talks about the tears. God takes our tears in a bottle. What psalm's that? I'll look it up while somebody else is speaking. I'll tell you by the end of the podcast. <laughs> I want to say Psalm 56. That's my guess. So, oh, okay. We used okay, to play. We used that. to play when we did Sam's <laughs> class. You know, we used to call it Sam's Bingo. If you could remember which which it's one they came. Very good. That's, I don't. It might be sixty-five, a five and a six. I do that with the Sam's as well. Confused. Huge, yeah, huge difference between saying that God put Joseph in the prison for His purposes, and saying that God was with Joseph all through that prison experience, yeah. and from that prison experience, yes. You know, God, Joseph knew God better, or understood other people better. You know, it, it's 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 a complete contrast to saying God did it. You God put you there for that. No. Yeah, and it's a very mm-hmm. it's it's just about syntax, but it's really not. It's actually about a very profound difference in understanding of of who God is. It is Psalm fifty six, Neil. She just stuck to my guns. Bingo to you. Well done. Yeah. So it is Psalm fifty six, verse eight. And in the NLT, it says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. I'm not sure how um, many other translations would would go with that. It takes me back to Jacob worshipping God, leaning on his walking stick. Well done for bringing us back to Jacob. But it is the same reason, isn't it? He's able to worship God, leaning on all his pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. It's it's not Mm -hmm. throwing the stick away and trying to run. It's in the midst of what's going on that we worship God. And we see God clearer, maybe. That's quite a claim. But. That's good. I just had a passing thought about it. So I know it says walking stick in, in this, but uh, it talks about the staff in the NIV. I wonder if it was the same staff that Moses had. Would it oh, last that long? There'll be, there'll, there'll be a Jewish midrash that ties the two together. <laughs> the, the story of the stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a there's a children's film waiting to be made. Um. Great. Anything else we wanted to 
talk about in particular? Did we want to talk a bit about mess- messianic promise in these chapters? Yeah, I was just thinking when Neil Will was talking about that, the abundance of grace that is seen as Joseph is reconciled to his brothers and, and just what we've talked about. It also took me back to the when Jacob's talking to his sons and he talks to Judah and he talks about uh, the king that will come from Judah and the abundance so there'll be there'll be so many vines that you can tie your donkey to a vine I presume because donkeys generally eat vines but if there's loads of them it doesn't matter and then you wash your clothes in wine because there's so much wine I mean, you would never use your wine to wash your clothes so there's this kind of a foretelling if you messianic if you like of of the abundance that's going to come uh, for me I, I, that made me think of Jesus completely messianic and that he he would bring this abundance, not just grace for these brothers or this family, but grace and reconciliation and peace uh, for the whole world. The grace, un- unimaginable, I suppose, abundance. Yeah. And again, those are words that I've not spent a lot of time on. The words that uh, Jacob says to his sons, but there's some real amazing things to ponder about within them. Yeah, I think I think the, the messianic thing happens, as, as you said, Jane, and there, there are there are there are moments of pointers. The most obvious one is the prediction of mm-hmm. Judah being the the ruler, the one from whom everyone comes, which will point to the tribe of David because David comes from Judah, and then later on, um, will point to Jesus who becomes the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. Um, so the um, I realise I've just quoted a chorus there as if it might be scripture. I think the Lion of Judah is definitely scripture. Is scripture. I'm not sure the juxtaposition of Lion is the, the, the chorus is the Lion of Judah. That's what yeah, it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like these people in years to come who are going to quote the chosen as if it's actually in the actual gospels. Um, the, um, yeah, so there's there's the explicit messianic promise, particularly through through Judah. And then there's also the the, the sense of promise that's coming to the land because Joseph says, don't don't um, bury me like my father in Egypt. Uh, when you all leave here, bring me with you. It's interesting that he wants to go with his people now, Joseph. So there's a renewed corporatism going on with, with Joseph. I think the second level that it becomes messianic is, is often the Joseph story is used as an allegory of Jesus. So it's the story of the the one man amongst us who goes ahead into the place of death and goes into prison and goes into the depths of the earth, but rises triumphant and then brings his brothers and sisters with him. So it's seen as Christ, the forerunner, eh, going in, into the, the, the place where we're going to find safety and salvation. So there's that's that second allegory. But I think the, the deepest allegory is that it points to Christ as the the gracious transformation of all our mm. of all our stories. It's that that moment in, in Genesis chapter fifty where the the pain of the brothers, the hierarchies, the the rivalries, all of them kind of melt into this deeper story, which is held by grace. And and I, I suspect it's deliberate. But in the in the illustrations in Triumph of Grace, the final line of the grace line is also the shape of the cross. And and I wonder if if that deeper transformative effect of what the cross does in forging a new community where hierarchies and boundaries are broken down and we live in belonging with our sisters and brothers it is is ultimately the messianic message of the story of Jesus. brilliant good so we have made it we've got through to chapter 50 of genesis what are we taking away from our experiences of reading this i'm going to think of uh, jen's cards that story you just told there, Jen, of getting the cards where people say everything happens for a reason in in that place of horrendous loss and of of your story uh, of of holding to the meaning of what that means, which um which doesn't mean I think well I know you, so I know you would never ever say that to someone going through that situation, but my guess, I mean you might want to confirm is that um that might be something that we pray for people that one day that this sense of this the that this matters will one day you'll reach that point so that's the thing i take away i'm i'm just thinking actually in response to what you've said neil uh, some of us are no karen palmer a friend of mine mm. um karen 25 maybe 30 years on from the death of jennifer has written a book about her loss 
and she has incredibly helpful comments in it about what to say <laughs> and what not to say. I, I, I just it came to my mind as Neil was talking, so yeah. I'd, I'd quite like to have that in the in the notes because yeah, I'll pop that into the show notes. Jen. Sometimes we, could, I don't want, I wouldn't want people to be fearful of saying things. You know, you're always better to say something than to say nothing. Uh, but Karen has some helpful pointers um, and, and a, a book worth reading as well. Great, we'll just put, for its own sake. Yeah, and we'll put notes. To, we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. But my takeaway, oh, I, ju- I really have been challenged by the amount of stuff in, in the story of Joseph. And I suppose there's that wee bit, where is it from? In the Gospels, which it says, as I actually got it on my wall, it says uh, there were so many more things that Jesus did and said and we couldn't write them all down. I'm not sure which Gospel that is. I think that's John. Uh, but it's that kind of feeling that there's so much more in the Bible for me to discover. And, and uh, even if I end up leaning on a stick, uh, and not being able to do very much uh, there will always be more things to discover and I don't mean that to sound twee but that's what this story has reminded me There was a, a hymn written in response to Jennifer's mm. story it's in the Church of Scotland hymn book uh, CH4 and the, the tune it's set to is called uh, Jennifer and it contains uh, the lines we cannot know the pain or the potential which passing years would summon or reveal but for that true fulfilment Jesus promised we hope and feel. So through the mess of anger, grief and tiredness, through tensions which are not yet reconciled, we give to God the worship of our sorrow and our dear child. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. My takeaway um, on a slight change of gear is um, to go and find out a bit more about the Levitical tribe and the practice in contemporary Judaism of the priesthood. <laughs> Quite specific, quite niche. It's <laughs> the most niche takeaway there's been. <laughs> what, what I'm feeling sad about is that, are we going to be able to bring that into, I know you're going to talk about seasons, but how are we going to shoehorn that into season three? Well, you can check up with me next time if I've got an increased knowledge of the Levitical line. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, so Jen, do you have a gem for us today? Yes, of course I do. Um, I've been thinking about how language matters, which was interesting because I didn't tell you that for you at the start, but that just came up in the last bit of our conversation there about the words we use, the way we use them really matters, and it particularly matters with children, but not just with children, because um, we all have different ways of interpreting what's said. And I'm particularly thinking about how children, but not just children, if neuro, we're all neurodiverse, aren't we? So people who, who think differently and see the world differently will also um, sometimes take things very literally. And a couple of examples of this to help you understand what I'm talking about. Um, so Laurie Lee in Cider with Rosie talks about being five years old and he is sent to school and the head teacher meets him at the door and she says, so it's his first day, it's primary one, and she says to him, just sit there for the present. And then the day goes on and he gets put in his class. And he comes home and he's very upset and his mum says, well, what's wrong? And, and he says, well, I, I, I sat there for the present and they didn't give it to me. <laughs> and so the, what the head teacher meant about just sit there for just now, um, for a little while, for a few minutes, and he thought he was getting a gift. And then yesterday I was talking to a colleague because I was in the Scottish Bible Society office for the first time in a little while. And the, the, the colleague was talking about as a child, again in primary one, interesting, that specific age, five, six, the, a teacher had said to him at the end of the first year of, of school, eh, well, that's us breaking up now and we'll see you after the summer. And he, again, he was in tears when he got home. His mum, his parents said, what, what's wrong? He, well, the school's breaking up. It's, it's being destroyed. I don't have a school anymore. Um, and so taking things literally is, is a big part of being a child. And that also can carry on depending on, you know, for, for people who have autism, they may do that as well. I remember a friend saying to a young person we knew, um, could you give me a hand? Meaning, could you help me carry these boxes into my car? And he he genuinely, he said, no, I can't. I need both my hands. And he wasn't being rude or cheeky. He needed both his hands. And then we rephrased it and said, would you mind taking this box and putting it in the car for me? And he was perfectly happy to do that. So that, you know, you could have, if we responded differently to him, um, that could have, escalated into situation but it wasn't it was just his understanding so our language when we read the bible with young people really matters and thinking there's so much metaphor in the bible and how can we explain that simply and in a way that they will understand so 
a, a practical thing I've just done a few weeks ago. We were talking about Jesus being the bread of life with a group of four to eight-year-olds. And we really had to work through that. It's, a, it's an incredible metaphor and a metaphor that adults struggle, adults who think in a certain way struggle to understand. So we had to think about bread and why it's good and what kind of bread is better than other bread and what things that we eat are good and why Jesus might have been thinking about that and what food's it bad and what other what what can Jesus give us eh, that's good for us that is essential and it's a, a very drawn out conversation and it was a conversation it wasn't here's the bread of life this is what it means it, it needed a lot of work to help them in their lit, generally mm -hmm. literal view of life to understand that metaphor so uh, uh, I've used a lot of words there but I hope that's helpful <laughs> language matters i think it matters for adults too i mean i, I take what you i take your point but we are all neurodivergent and no 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 and, I, and i'm yeah i'm hoping i'm trying to express that that it's not just a skill that's needed when we're with children and young people what, what's the phrase that people in the the autism community use for people who are not autistic is it is it neurotypical or something yeah neurotypical so we're going to take a break. We're breaking up for a little while, uh, but we are not uh, causing any heartbreak in the midst of that. We will be back at the start of October with season three. Very much looking forward to a new season. Very much relishing the use of the word and that will be available in October. Our title for that is going to be Rebuilding with Hope. We're going to be looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah and some Haggai and thinking about really how we look at the big issues of our times through a biblically focused lens um, through those Old Testament books and responding, I suppose, with both realism and hope to the post-pandemic world that we find ourselves in. So more will be revealed in due course. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us so far. I hope you've enjoyed our meanderings and interruptions and tangents. Uh, and please do remember, if you are enjoying it and uh, it's helpful, then do think about sharing the podcast with other people and like it rate it subscribe share etc and we look forward to speaking to you in october thank you meanwhile today to neil and to jen thank, thank you. you and also to amy who is engineering for us and doing a sterling Huge work thank, you, so thank you amy and we'll see you next time <laughs>